0: Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. On today's episode, we have Sai Wei Chen, a journalist based out of New York who covers China and the country's tech sector. I really wanted Sai Wei to come on the show because I think he brings a really interesting and unique perspective that's important right now. We're having a lot of talks and conversations about the role technology plays in diplomatic talks between China and U.S. foreign policy. I think what Sai Wei brings to the table is the role of people and community in affecting or driving those talks. I think this is a really great conversation we had at a really pivotal moment in the history of these two nations, not to oversell it, of course. Here's our conversation. I hope you all enjoy. Hello, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: How are you? How are you real quick before we start?
1: I'm doing good. I'm currently based in New York City, following the news, including TikTok ban and other Chinese tech company
0: news. Okay. On that topic, on that thread, can you please tell the audience who you are and what do you do?
1: Of course. So my name is Taiwei Chen. I'm currently a freelance journalist covering... The tax sector in China. I also work a lot on the overseas activism and organizing, especially that's happening on social media.
0: Yeah, that's how I got to know you and your work, right? You had the piece on Wired that I'm so sorry I did not get the title of before I started recording, but I will link it down below. And it was about what you just said it was at the intersection of technology, diaspora, and social movements, which I thought was very on brand for this podcast. And I'd love if we could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I I wrote about the Chinese protests mm-hmm. last year. I think the article was published back in December. And that's how we knew each other.
0: Yeah, and it was a really good article. I'm going to link it in the podcast notes, like I said. But I would really love if you can help situate us with what those protests were about and the role social media played in organizing them. If you could help us do that.
1: The row of the current protests or protests in response to the very draconian zero COVID policy a few months ago that we we're seeing mm-hmm. actually didn't emerge as protests. So in other words, when these protests are emerging and people are organizing it, they happened in the name of vigils to a room chief at fire. So the fire was happening in West China's Yunqi, which is in Xinjiang province. It was a fire that was caused by unidentified reasons, but it was very clear that because of the zero COVID policy, the residential compound that the fire happened in was in a shutdown. Mm -hmm. So the people that were locked in the building could not get help in time. The the firefighters could not get in the the residential compound because of the lockdown. And that caused at least 11 people, including um, children, lost their lives. Mm -hmm. So it was very tragic and definitely added to the already burning grievances in China in regards to the zero COVID policy, because we all know that during the last year, Chinese government has actually ever since COVID started, Chinese government has been not in sync with the global governments and countries in terms of COVID updates, not to mention a lot of other measures that's needed, including vaccines. I would say the fear for COVID was very strong and people were going through very extreme measures like home arrest style lockdowns Mm -hmm. in their homes. So, of course, we're seeing all the problems we're seeing in the West and China, like the the depression, like the mental health issues. and But more importantly, through this fire and a lot of other incidents that people got to share, despite censorship online, we're seeing real human consequences mm-hmm. um, through these uh, measures has imposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has caught like a societal wide Grievance and dissatisfaction with the policy, so I think that's definitely the fuel of this protest.
0: Mm-hmm. And they were called the A4 protests, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So A4 as referring to the the blank sheet of paper. So the your regular A4 paper that was adopted i believe in the middle of the protest by some very clever protesters they first started holding up a blank sheet of paper as a sign of protest so we can see there were protesters that were holding up signs Mm -hmm. uh, posters and slogans a lot of them are freedom related and stated the matter they're trying to protest but as we all know this will get you in trouble in china the police started arresting people we're seeing a very iconic meme being produced which is in shanghai there's a there is a road there's a street called yurumchi road
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is of the name of the where the fire happened mm-hmm. so people started gathering around the sign of the road uh, that so yurumchi road became an unofficial gathering spot for protesters and the shanghai government did a hilarious response to that which is they remove the road sign. <laughs> they tried to remove the sign that says she wrote to stop people from gathering there. So mm-hmm. um, that became a popular meme online, especially on Instagram and Twitter. People took a snapshot of the, the workers, the construction workers that are taking down the road sign. And a lot of them even superimposed them with the Beatles album. And there was a lot of variations and yeah, just interpretations of that.
0: That was a really interesting part of the article for me personally was the role Instagram meme boards played specifically in helping organize these diasporic communities. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, like why, what made Instagram and Instagram memes so appealing for this particular motivation?
1: Yeah, definitely. So before we start talking about Instagram, I think a very important context is we need to know the role of Twitter in this wave of protests, Mm -hmm. because part of the reason why and a very important context of me writing the article is the role of Twitter as a central information hub Mm -hmm. was being hailed by Western media. And a lot of people, especially Western media are saying, are claiming, not claiming, a lot of Western media are featuring this blogger whose name is Li Laoshi, which is roughly translates to Teacher Mm Li. So this Teacher Li person on Twitter um, through anonymous submission model became the central information hub of Chinese protest. So what we're seeing Is if a Chinese protest is happening in any city, people have the video, the video will somehow made its way into teacher Lee's submission box and teacher Lee will post it. And from many interviews, we know that he's a he's an artist. He's a Chinese artist based in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was sort of a dissident figure before this all happened. And he's, he's very, he, he follows these Chinese protests regularly and posts a lot about social events. So it makes sense that when these riots and protests and street gatherings happen, people just start directing the video to him and ask him, can you post this for us? So he started doing that. And the result of that was very surprising. More and more people start doing the submission model, and he became the central information hub. If you go to the if you go to his page now, which I think we can link in the description probably, you will be able to find almost every single video that's available about Chinese protests. So, Teacher Li unofficially became a media or an information board that's like almost twenty four seven refreshing about whatever that's happening around China and outside of China. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of journalists and just people outside of the Great Firewall, because we all know that you cannot post these videos within China, right? It will get almost like immediately censored and probably get you in trouble. So a lot of people will go to Twitter and Instagram. These platforms by nature are not Chinese companies and not available in China. So people who have access to Instagram or Twitter Are the ones who have the habit to use vpn Mm -hmm. which is a tool that you can use to access the banned social media websites in china and these people can use vpn to access them they can exist outside of the control of chinese communist party and this is where these protest information got to proliferate so i would say that ace a4 movement was started in china and we can see that the attention and the spotlight from media was mostly put on China and also Twitter, you can really see those videos and the media of the protest picking up popularity outside of the China mm-hmm. outside of China and in the diaspora community. So that's why I wrote the article because I think the role of Twitter was very well reported while the role of Instagram in this protest, is kind of underreported and overlooked. And another reason is I think diaspora community, which is the Chinese nationals and not even Chinese nationals, just Chinese, ethnically Chinese groups that are living and working outside of China, also plays a very important role in the protest. And that is like so, that is kind of in sync with, with the protests at home, but mm-hmm. also manifested a lot of its own characteristics and its own personality I think.
0: Yeah that, that's that that was really interesting to me actually and I want to stay on this thread about talking or talking about the Chinese diaspora. In your article you talk about how these recent protests push back against the narrative of the Chinese diaspora as almost an apolitical being, right and I'm curious. How would you characterize the different types of diaspora communities that we currently see? And what role do you see them playing politically?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's very hard to talk about this topic without talking about my own identity first. So like a lot of Chinese diaspora abroad, I am a Chinese national and I came to America through study abroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did part of my college here and I did my master's program here in America. And I'm currently working here. So this group of Chinese study abroad students or people who came, came to America or Western countries after their childhood was largely overlooked by media and a lot of activism, in my opinion. On one hand, you are away from home long enough to be a little bit detached from chinese domestic politics and another on another side you are you haven't stayed long enough to be fully integrated into let's say like u.s local politics or elsewhere i believe is similar Mm -hmm. so there's a very disjointed relationship between chinese diaspora abroad with like asian american activism because back in COVID first started, we're seeing a lot of anti-Asian hate Mm -hmm. activism in the United States and other Western countries too. And a lot of those activism and advocacy, if you look at the people who are leading it, which I believe is very important, rests on Asian Americans are Americans too, Mm -hmm. which is an argument that innately precludes a lot of Chinese diaspora abroad, which is a huge population. And that led you to think if you're not American and you're not currently in China, what can you do in the political sense? Like how can you connect with the community and engage in like whatever that's going on in the current global political climate? So until very recently, I think that is a question on the community level remains very unanswered. Mm. Yeah. But what I'm seeing since COVID happens is a very curious and interesting turn that Chinese diaspora community abroad are gradually finding their voice. And I think the Shanghai lockdown and the A4 movement was definitely a definitive point. Mm -hmm. Uh, After this and during this, you're seeing a lot of diaspora-focused organizations, grassroots groups, and even meme pages, right? It's a it's a very grassroots, root, grassroots form of organization. They are really emerging online. They especially Instagram. So back, I think two years ago, I was following zero, next to zero Instagram accounts that are targeted at diasporic Chinese people. Now I'm following over a hundred. Mm-hmm. So there's really a boom, and a lot of these a lot of these pages. They started as meme pages and moot boards. And that's what I was discussing in the article that I'm so curious about, because a lot of these pages and the community building within the overseas Chinese diaspora didn't start it out that political. And although the, the widely held notion that, oh, Chinese study abroad students are just rich, spoiled little brats, these, these arguments are obviously blatantly wrong. And have been proven wrong. I, I definitely do think the radicalization and the politicization, if that's a word, I think it is. Yeah, it is.
0: Uh,
1: it's of, <laughs> great. Of the Chinese diaspora, especially the study abroad and working abroad youth community didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. There was a gradual process. And I think in this case, particularly what's very interesting is how aesthetics and humor plays into it. And this process was very gradual.
0: Can you talk a little more about the role of humor? What do you mean by that, if you can expand?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, as we can see, I've talked about, there were a lot of grassroots organizations, meme pages and communities forming on Instagram. And a lot of these Instagram pages started as meme pages. So in 2018 and 2019, I believe, one of the first meme pages started. And an iconic one that I cannot not mention is called Rich Kids, English Police. So if fully by, we haven't, so, oh, there's there's an article about it by my dear friend Tianyu published in Chaoyang Trap, which is a newsletter that I used to work on that we can link here about it. So he profiled the, the creator of Rich Kids, English Police. Rich kids, English Police, which you can probably infer through the name, is a page that leads into the stereotype of Chinese study abroad students, especially NYU students of all, being rich, uneducated, sort of illiterate, and funny. Mm-hmm. So these pages will do jokes and memes mainly centered around English. Mm-hmm. We'll see a lot of instances of Chinese students making very terrible mistakes, uh, or they will spell things they will spell things wrong. Like they will they will throw a very extravagant party, playing Secret Santa, but ended up spelling Santa as Satan. Or you will see the obviously very rich and like a rich 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 fuck boy type. I shouldn't say that a rich boy, wearing not Balenciaga but Beijing Siaga T-shirts. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> sorry keep going
1: yeah so English has been using English and English itself has mm-hmm. long been a loaded term in Chinese culture right on one hand it's so mundane it's something so mundane in study abroad students life in in Chinese diaspora's life we use it every day but on the other hand it's also very difficult for someone who uses it as a second language and it's so and with social class is perceived to be a language used by educated elites. Mm-hmm. It's perceived to be this language that will add this extra layer of officialness and professionalism in a lot of occasions. So rich kids, English police will capture these funny and even absurd moments. Mm-hmm. And that that type of content first find its first find its audience. In the study abroad community, in the Chinese diaspora community, because you have to be literate and a little bit savvy, linguistically savvy in both English and Chinese to get these jokes, right? Yeah. So accounts like this. And I believe another is called Dongbei cannot be fucked with. Dongbei can be fucked with. Dongbei is a region in China. You can compare it with like American South. So people in Dongbei, people from Dongbei are known for being very hearty, very enthusiastic, passionate, and have a funny accent. Okay. So another NYU student who is from Dongbei started Dongbei Can Be Fucked With. And there's another account called Daily Dose of Meme for All. Mm-hmm. And these are really the holy trinity of Chinese diaspora meme pages. <laughs> the, the three OGs. And you can see from these G meme, meme pages, communities started to form. Mm-hmm. And you see these pages rallying Chinese people from different regions, studying at different universities, working at different companies, and variations of them also started to emerge. So there are probably a, a big corporate analyst version of these meme pages. There's a, there's a Bay Area version of these meme pages. And there's so different variations and niche started to emerge. And it's not long till these jokes turn political. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a very important term because the unwillingness to talk about politics and like a, a tendency of political apathy from my observation was av- was evident, was something that's real in the Chinese diaspora community. People do not like to directly criticize the government or do not want to do that without a good reason because still Mm -hmm. although you're overseas there's something called reporting culture which is like stemmed from the ultra nationalistic movement in china circa starting circa 20 Mm -hmm. 2016-17 the over the internet and society overall are getting to a peak of nationalism and a bunch of people which the internet calls little pinks emerged they basically go on the internet and brainlessly, fearlessly defend China, defend the Chinese government. And these people, a lot of these individuals are also in the overseas community and people are very fearful of being reported to the government. So there's definitely this culture of silence and surveillance that kept people from doing things more political or voicing any of their opinions, because growing up as a Chinese millennial or Gen Z, you didn't, if your childhood was mostly in China, you didn't get that exposure to participating in politics or advocacy. That was largely deemed as dangerous, especially although this generation didn't experience the 1989, the Tiananmen movement themselves. The the ghost of the Tiananmen movement and the memory from, oh, the last round of university students are actually actively speaking out against the government. Look at what happened to them. The distance memory is still haunting the entire nation and people. Mm -hmm. So I think Instagram provided a very clever middle ground. And if you look at a lot of literature and characteristic of Chinese Internet, the the rhetoric of Chinese Internet and the commentary of Chinese current events tend to be very playful and very, very subtle. And that's that fit into the, the vibe of most of these accounts. They're smart. They're subtle. They're sly. They, they use this puns and thing imageries. To, to roast people and to, to crack the joke. So it's not long until like political jokes and jokes about the Shanghai lockdown found its way into these meme pages. And I think a very, another very important fact that factored into this is because of, the, because of COVID, a lot of study abroad students are now doing online classes or professionals are working from home now. So more Chinese diaspora abroad are returning home. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a reverse culture shock there. Once they return home, they're met with the very, very strict and the very inhumane lockdown measures. You go from being abroad in a Western country to a highly and even heightened authoritarian reality where you have to worry about if you have food for the next meal and your basic freedom was highly restricted. So this definitely prompted a lot of study abroad students and Chinese diaspora to actively speak out on Instagram. And a lot of them were voiced out through Instagram pages. So people will start submitting to the administrators of these page and an administrator will post them in a story or edit them, curate them in a way for view so there is this very good and mutually trusting sharing space being constructed on Instagram as we see and this foregrounded the protest and these we can see these Instagram pages and meme boards later became not just an information hub but where Chinese youth are radicalized and mobilized in the later protest. Mm-hmm
0: wow there's a lot to pull from that and i want to circle back on a few elements but i'm very curious obviously there's a lot of different social and cultural dynamics happening between what happened in 1989 and sorry 2022 2023 but what what accounts for the different government reactions to those protests because they did end very differently in my view at least did it have anything to do with this, the cultural background or social background about what happened in Urumqi and Zhongzhou, or what exactly led to these different responses, if you can give any insight.
1: Are you saying what made the government react differently in 1989 and today?
0: I guess I'm more interested in what has changed that, yes, essentially, yes. Like, why did they react differently now as opposed to them, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm more... Thinking about the contemporary moment. But yeah, if you could give any insight into that, in your opinion.
1: Well, I'm no historian, so I cannot talk in very extensive detail about the 1989 student protest. But a very important difference we can see is if you say that 1989 student protest, the pro-democracy protest ended tragically and epically, we can say that today's protest ended abruptly and unexpectedly mm-hmm. so but of course we didn't see as many people dying and that kind of that kind of scale in today's protest which is which makes sense like first of all today's protest is scale is still by scale much smaller it didn't reach back in the day scale. And another reason is, I think what we're gonna get more into is, you see today's protest is much more digitally mediated. So that's where technology comes into the play. If, if, the, if 1989's protest was more by student actually on the ground doing the work, today is more, oh, people are using VPN, they're going on Instagram, they're going on Twitter. So that made this movement much more untraceable. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, on that note, still a lot of people got arrested and that was tragic, but but still you can see a lot of Chinese police during the protest. They started to check, they started to excessively check everyone to see if they have VPN and they have foreign apps on their phone. And mm-hmm. that's the only only way they can terrorize the crowd. And I think that measure itself speaks to how terrified they are and how much they cannot control the situation outside of the Great Firewall because when people started to use social media, Western social media to spread information and especially with the existence of such a strong overseas diaspora community, we can see that every suppressed protest and every repressed slogan in China will inspire like a 10 times more fierce response overseas we're seeing the protests not just within china but in all over thousand all over north america in europe in in korea in japan in australia we're seeing this protest wherever chinese people are and that is something that Chinese government is very hard to control. And, and, the, and the, the zero COVID policy and what happened in Shanghai is definitely a trigger and caused like an unexpected emotional strain on such like a wide range of people that taking me as an example, a lot of friends of mine, when, when New York is, is witnessing the, the vigils, the protests, a lot of my most unapolitical apolitical friends mm-hmm. um are are hitting up each other and going to the protest. So that that speaks to something. People are very, very angry about the Shanghai lockdown because it's their it's their freedom and it's their livelihood and safety that are being threatened. Mm-hmm. And I think storytelling played into played into the the protest that so there are Twitter and Instagram and Weibo too although since information might be more censored on Weibo Weibo is like the Chinese Twitter hmm. you see people in these unofficial spaces like Instagram meme pages and mood boards they're sharing their stories a lot of the a lot of the meme pages the the pages most prominent one being citizen daily who can be considered a central Mobilizer and organizer in this round of protest they emerged from a news sharing site a meme page into a page that exclusively posts dissent, the overseas dissent and the uh, the movements of overseas radical forces during the during the pandemic and after shanghai lockdown especially and these forces after people started going the street and meeting each other these I think offline community experience are also very crucial because they turn out to be electrifying for a lot of people. It was the first contact for a lot of people in my generation to actual political advocacy or offline political protest. And I think the fact that COVID, zero COVID policy ended up being so abruptly and so quickly dropped by Chinese government and China just opened up so so quickly after the protest is spreading speaks to the triumph in a way of the protest although like we can see from the blank sheet of paper that the um what is the what is the most clever about a blank sheet of paper is also the disadvantage and like the the limitation of the sign right because having a blank sheet of paper means that there isn't an agreed upon slogan or central thesis for what the protest is about. At least back in 1989, people were were advocating for democracy. But for today, what is that? I don't think our community is mature enough to give an answer yet. But I think this experience of organizing paves the way for a lot of future activism, as we see a lot of overseas Chinese diaspora groups are forming, there are art collectives, there are meme pages, there are a lot of different organizations and institutions spring up.
0: Yeah, the society is getting stronger away mm-hmm. from with the distance from state oppression. Is that okay to say? Or I don't want to come at this naively or ignorantly, but I, that's typically how it's structured, right? Like, The idea that the state is very strong, but the society is weaker.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think so my generation specifically that like when I was, when I was writing the article, when I was interviewing one of the meme page owners, what he said actually echoed a lot with me, which is my generation in China actually grew up in a very interesting time that we caught the tail end of China's optimism about globalization, So I was a kid that mainly, I was born in 1997. That's Mm -hmm. the year of the Hong Kong handover. So the year I was born, I witnessed like Hong Kong. I mean, I didn't actually remember it, but that coincide with Hong Kong being handed over back to China. And as a little kid, I grew up in the 2000s where all you hear is this optimism for 2008 Beijing Olympics. So Beijing Olympics is definitely a monumental event in a lot of Chinese Gen Z's memory because it was so, it was so heavy, heavily propaganda, propagandized in the Chinese propaganda machine and grow, going to school. We're just hearing this, the world is connecting, China is opening up to the world and we're embracing the world. Before 20, 2008, I think China is, gonna be, China is going to be more economically strong, but also social, socially and culturally liberal. Mm-hmm. That was a widely held belief of many people. And that's the very reason of why so many people of my generation started learning English, right? In the first place, we started learning English and looking into studying abroad under this optimism for globalization but when my generation was older the Chinese society visibly started the the values started going more conservative the whole society was not going more liberal and democratic instead it is going the authoritarian direction we got a new leader and we got this whole new more intense censorship that limited the the space of free speech and expression so this contrast i think is something that's very new and fresh in our memory to unpack and it's not something that's kind of unleashed until the recent protest
0: yeah that is really interesting and that's something i should have maybe given more thought to but just the timeline of being chinese and being gen z like that is a monumental couple of decades from the hand over of Hong Kong to the Beijing Olympics. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I want to circle back. I don't know if you have any comments on what I was just saying, but I do want to circle back to Chinese Americans and the Chinese diaspora who are studying abroad and working abroad, which is a significant population. Again, please tell me if I'm being naive, but you said there was a lot of questions still In the middle of that right like do you see any solutions of that coalescing or working together through technology or through protest means to kind of find solutions towards what you're talking about i'm still trying to figure out the exact question but i mean do you see those two communities working together more or finding common ground
1: yes i think that's a very good question it's definitely something i'm still thinking in trying to put into words, I think, as I have mentioned, the Chinese-American, like the Chinese-American community, or we say all, all Asian people in America came from Asia, right? Large. And so it's it's like, you can see this as a American versus Chinese problem, mm-hmm. where the American, uh, like Chinese-Americans was American nationality and American living experiences with the the fobs, like the fresh of the boat, newer, living in American Chinese nationals. You can frame it as a American versus Chinese problem, but mm-hmm. you can also frame it as a generational problem. Because as like living abroad and studying abroad becoming more popular and naturalized, Chinese Americans are in fact like second or third generations of immigrants, while the Chinese diaspora we're talking about today are a lot of them, if they stay, becoming first-gen Americans, right? And a lot of them are, as we see, playing a very important role in the overseas organizing of protests. They are living in America, but they still keep, like, the Chinese issues as one of their central concerns and are working with even newer immigrants to work through art, or, or comedy, or meme pages, or whatever, to tackle the issues that are happening domestically. So I think the pandemic and uh, the discriminatory experience of a lot of ethnically Asian people that I experienced in America is definitely a unifying moment for a lot of people because discrimination doesn't see generations or nationalities. Mm-hmm. In the, at the end of the day, whether you're international students or you are second gen, third gen Americans, to white people or to a mainstream American society, you are the same. So as long as we're living in America, we need to find a way to work through these differences. And I'm seeing a lot of organizations that are already doing organizing and discussion work on it. And what's the What's their name? I think it's Asian, there's a really good one I, I think they're called csa
0: i'm also called.
1: yeah it's called csa network okay. it's called chinese student and activist network they are an organization that i've been following and they organize workshops and sharing sessions for very valuable and important topics including like how to how to participate in social movements overseas while minding your own safety and how to talk about China in a classroom setting and how to work through the differences and the similarities between Asian American rhetoric and the Chinese rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are already stepping up to do the very important work.
0: Okay. Very cool. I have a similar question, I guess, that you kind of already answered, but I want to maybe see if you have any other thoughts on it. Obviously, tensions Maybe not obviously, but I think it's obvious. Like tensions are pretty high between the United States and China at the moment, and maybe this is naive to think about. I would like to think I'm more of a cynical optimist, but do you see any routes? Or do do you can you imagine any grassroots solutions that involve the diaspora coalescing and working together, or you know, like Chinese Americans and Chinese nationals similar to the A4 movement? Like, can you imagine any scenario where that is possible? Or is that a little too naive on my part?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. So, to me, I'm working, probably is working in media and looking at these information pretty heavily. Definitely got me very pessimistic about the outlook, at least in the recent few years, politically, between China and the U.S. I think as long as China is still tightening, tightening its authoritarian control and as we can see, there are Uyghur camps going on, there's a massive detention and some will even say genocide against the ethically Muslim minorities in China. As long as these things are happening, I don't think there is a definitive resolution that will go on between the U.S. government, the U.S. politicians, and the Chinese ones. There is a lot of tension, as we can see in the recent TikTok hearing. You, you, you see the U.S. senators questioning the TikTok CEO about, like, in a way that he cannot really answer. And mm-hmm. I personally definitely think this: the the fear and the, the irrational fear people attribute to. TikTok, there's definitely this moral panic when like a new technology comes into being. There's just this natural, very terrifying response. I, I We see senators spreading misinformation blatantly in a U.S. hearing publicly. They're claiming a lot of toxic or harmful challenges originated on TikTok, which mm-hmm. it didn't. And you see the senators asking very ignoring questions but this doesn't stop the fear and the the sentiment of like the sentiment of antagonization mm-hmm. going on. We're already seeing a lot of Chinese companies either try to start setting up headquarters or hiring more overseas people to pass as locals. And that would definitely like bring into being more interesting conversations about, oh, if a if a company has has a non-Chinese CEO, is based outside of China. And a lot of most of its most of its shareholders are not Chinese. Is it still Chinese? If it's founded in China, or what makes a company Chinese? I think we're definitely gonna see more of those going on in the mm-hmm. future, more debates and Chinese companies trying to de Chinese ness themselves. Yeah. Which I find itself is pretty. It's really sad th- it's pretty really sad to to be seeing that like we have to chinese Chinese business has to kind of remove their national tag to to even have a spot in in the global space. But I think if I can see a solution, it will only happen on the local level and in the communities near you. Um this circles back to to why this round of Chinese protests last year is so powerful and the offline experience is so electrifying for many people is because the connections people are forming are through telling stories and a shared community experience of whether laughing together or viewing the pictures. So one of the mood board administrators that I interviewed in Square he 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 mainly posted pictures of the TMM protest, and the historical archive of pictures got unexpected emotional response from Chinese people of that of this generation. So I think seeing these imagery and actually talking to people, especially the the kind of talks that are between Chinese Americans and Chinese diaspora, and while the the immigration as a very complex and evolving phenomenon keep changing, we will see more connection and communication going on. So all I can hope for is that at the local level, we all get along. Mm-hmm. And while authoritarianism and antagonism between nations are going on, individuals can have some fun with it with their friends. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. I know it was a little bit ago, but talking about the comedy of the meme pages, I mean, it's, it's classic satire, right? Like it's a classic where you're poking fun at authoritarianism at a, to a certain extent classism, right? Like the performativity of it, even though you get some things wrong, like having a big secret Santa fest that you misspell Santa. I thought that was very interesting. Just one, something I wanted to say earlier. Yeah. Speaking of which, does, does TikTok connect to the Wi-Fi? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's so classic.
0: <laughs> it was just to talk about it because I, I didn't know how to bring it up. But thank you for sharing your thoughts on TikTok. I think, I, you know, I wish some of the senators were a little more educated in what they were asking because I think, you know, it's valid to question it. But then some of the questions I'm just like, you came in here already knowing you were going to ban it. Right, like you came in here fully just saying, we're going to get rid of this and then we'll make him look bad. The poor guy like can't answer. (laughs) Like everything connects to (laughs) Wi-Fi, you know?
1: Yeah, and they really, you see so many, I I feel like U.S. Congress here, the, the hearing is really doing like reverse PR for the U.S. government in this sense. In Gen Z's hearts, as you can see on TikTok, I personally am a TikTok user, and if you go on TikTok, the newest TikTok trend is defending TikTok. There, there were obviously a lot of funny, funny memes. People were calling Show Chu Daddy and saying he's attractive, <laughs> and making making memes and parody of the the questioning going on. But I think I hope like this is also between generations technology can bring people together but also divide people and generations and I remember like when when YouTube first came out and in China when when social media first came out people had a lot of doubts about it people were having this moral panic hmm. thinking oh it's young people are losing themselves that the morals are being threatened we have heard this so many times. So yeah, I I, I think the senators need to use some technology, probably.
0: That a less serious question, but just to get your th- do you think it's gonna get banned? Do you think it's gonna spin off into its own American based company? Just any quick thoughts? Like what do you think the future holds for TikTok?
1: I really do not know. I think well, I think what I think is that it, whether it's banned or not, the users on the user side, they're definitely not gonna see any imminent change on their app because if they're banning this through app store or forbid people to download it people who already have downloaded it can still access it right Mm -hmm. and they will have to and if they're going to force a sale it's going to cost way more time than expected because we've seen this whole tiktok needs to be sold act being played out under trump Mm -hmm. two years ago, and it didn't work out. So I do think the sentiment is still going to be there. What I'm more worried about is the restrict act. So they're passing an act called restrict, you know, I know, right. They, they really spend a lot of time coining these names. So the acronym is like restrict. This, if this act, which, which Biden is pushing got passed, I think it will have further and deeper implication on a lot of Chinese business, not just TikTok, but a lot of other sectors as it has included so many different sectors, not just the, like cybersecurity or space or telecommunication, the seemingly more sensitive ones. It even includes e-commerce and open source software and a lot of innocuous fields, at least seemingly innocuous fields. So I think that would definitely factor into how Chinese companies are making decisions to expand into American market if that got passed.
0: Yeah. On a similar note, I guess combining the threads of our conversation, could you give me your thoughts on what the implications are for the Chinese tech sector in relation to not only TikTok, but the A4 movement and the diaspora communities working together and in relation to the crackdowns also happening? That was a very messy question, but I'm basically asking, where does the Chinese tech sector go from here with the Great Firewall, but also a very strong study abroad and work abroad community?
1: Yeah, I think that it's very interesting that we see a lot of technology mediated dissent and protest in the last year, but the role of Chinese internet companies and Chinese tech sector, especially the the companies they're largely absent. Mm-hmm. So, it the, and the reason of that is is pretty pretty much goes without saying, if any social media platforms allows uh, a video that contains the sins, it will run into problem, most likely with Chinese government, right? So, by nature, they cannot do it. What we're seeing is not just Chinese protesters and dissidents spreading their message across Western social media, like, Instagram, uh, and Twitter. What we're also seeing is they're embracing a lot of low-tech solutions. Um, So that's also interesting that mediated a lot of the protests, but it's also mediated by a lot of pre-tech or low-tech measures. Like people are airdropping each other, the the, the posters Mm -hmm. on, on the subway and a lot of different places. God, I miss a subway that has Wi-Fi new york city just i I cannot
0: they're working Um, on it though right sorry to interrupt but they're working on building a subway in new york with wi-fi
1: are they so that that'd be great news that'd be great news taxing people on new york subway is really painful That is,
0: i can verify in,
1: in beijing in beijing they they got to airdropping people protest posters almost like like espionage work Mm. Um, so, so as a response, you see Chinese government demanding that new Apple phones produce that doesn't contain airdrop functions in China because it's deemed too dangerous. And we're seeing a lot of places, people are embracing zine culture. It's like they can, they use handmade booklets, posters, and they, they put up things in bathrooms where there's no surveillance. We see a lot of bathroom stalls and bathroom art. Becoming a a genre, because that's the only place where there isn't a camera. Wow. Um, So people will put on like anti-CCP posters or writing in a bathroom stall. I think that's very interesting too. So we definitely see these two directions that you could go when it comes to tag versus tag meet protest. Mm -hmm. Um, on one hand we see these information being disseminated super quickly and electrifying people there's this enthusiasm of community building and sharing on digital social media but on the other hand people that are actually in china have ways of information spreading and the person who who sparked the fire of this protest. A lot of people would say, which is a dissident and activist that went out to Sittong Bridge, which is like a pretty busy area in Beijing. He handed a poster calling out Xi Jinping, the president, Chinese government, and the, the, the zero COVID policy into question. So he, although like arrested immediately, he his activism was very non-digital, right? Yeah. Like he... He, he was just like actually go to the place and pan the poster in the central business area. So I think this, I also mentioned this in my article, that this will definitely drive a wedge between people who are abroad and can afford to show these slides freely of protest message in their Instagram story and the people who actually have a lot more to risk. And yeah, and I think that's a uh, being able to have these community building and funny joking, the satire, these is, is itself a privilege. And I think that's very important to bear in mind.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a really interesting dynamic though between the digital and the analog. And I think it speaks to the levels of safety in both countries, right? Where you can feel safer posting if you live in like New York or Sydney or London, a meme about the government versus being presently in Shanghai or Beijing. So I I think that's, it's, it's interesting to think about in our current era, that it's not like one fully overtakes the other, you know, like both are necessary to enact these social movements. Just winding down, I wanted to ask, What are you working on currently? Like, are there any articles you're really focused on? Obviously, there's been a lot of things happening in the world of technology, in the world of geopolitics. The first two things off my mind were the Spy Balloon and ChatGPT, OpenAI, which I know you've written a little bit about. And then just where can people find you? Where can the audience find you, Uh, your socials? Yeah.
1: Uh, So I've been working a little bit on ChatGPT and China's response to it, especially in the tech sector with an article also published in Wired. I'm also working on another story that's vaguely related to ChatGPT. So about the Chinese e-commerce sector, how a lot of Chinese factories are rebranding themselves as indie websites using self-taught SEO and social media skills with the help of ChatGPT.
0: Wait, can you expand? I'm sorry. I, I know this is your next article. I don't want to give everything away, but
1: yeah, so so, yeah. so we see a lot of Chinese companies well, Chinese China is the company for the world, the factory for the world, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of Chinese manufacturer companies, they used to be at the very low end of the global supply chain. But as the e-commerce sector evolves, they're seeking to rebrand themselves as brands and a real a real company to be reckoned with, basically. So the factories, a lot of a lot of the Instagram ads of clothing and accessories you're seeing these days are actually rebranded Chinese factories. So that's a very interesting phenomenon, I think. Yeah. So there a lot of them are seeking to lose the intermediary, which is like Amazon or more pop more recently, Shein and Timu the Chinese e-commerce giants. So they are trying to go out on their own, a very small fraction of companies and factories. That's very interesting, I think. And I'm also working on another article about, it's also about generative AI, the ethics of generative AI and poor in this day and age. That one yeah. that will, will be in Chinese.
0: I look forward to reading what I can of it because I think... It's a it's a brave new world we're coming into, and these are important things to think about as it's kind of just been unleashed on all of us. You know, like the Pope with the Balenciaga on. I don't know if you yeah. saw. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it was clearly fake to me, but I I'm sure that if my grandma saw it, she would not know it was fake. You know.
1: Well, at least the Pope is not wearing Beijing Siaga. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, who you know, he's a man of the people. Like, I could totally see him, you know, trying to connect interculturally in that way.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Where can the people find you? What social media is, what do you like to plug?
1: Yeah, I'm on the dooming site, twitter.com. And my Twitter handle is at C. So C-A-I-W-E-I-C.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I also have a personal website. That's w.chensaiwei.com.
0: I can link it. (laughs) I'm sorry to interrupt. I I could have linked it, but thank you for telling
1: us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: Thank you for coming on. This has been really informative. I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, it's pleasurable talking with you.
0: I think what's really interesting to me coming out of this conversation, quite frankly, was the role of comedy. Because when I read her Wired piece, I I recognized the role comedy played in these protests and in this organizing and in this collective action. But I think what's important for me to to point out for myself, at least, right, is... I mean, just having the gratitude of realizing and recognizing the privilege of being an American, right? And this is something we're going to talk about more and that we have been talking about on this show a lot. Even though I and other people who have come on this show are minorities in this country, there still is an amount of freedom we're granted, right, to criticize the government, to criticize our leaders, to talk freely about it, that other people do not have. So I think that's a really interesting thing that happens in diaspora, right? Especially from this perspective, from the specific example of the Chinese study abroad diaspora or work abroad diaspora, where they are allowed certain privileges that they did not have on the mainland. I think satire is very powerful in that way. I think there are limits, obviously. I think there is a limit to what the media can do as opposed to on the ground collective organizing and action but I, that is something very powerful isn't it that is something incredibly powerful that we maybe take for granted that we shouldn't i think it's an incredible gift um, i wish i was funnier to say something funny <laughs> but I, i'm grateful for that perspective and to and to really place it and situate it in this context right i mean The state within its borders can only do so much. And it can do a lot, do not get me wrong. It can exert incredible power. But what happens when there are communities that leave those borders and are open or have more freedom to express themselves and their, let's say, (laughs) uh, disdain for certain policies and actions, right? I think that's super interesting. For all countries in this day and age honestly like we're, I'm, we're talking about china and this example but we can look to cuba and past examples that we've talked with miami freedom project or angelica i think this is something we're going to talk about more in coming episodes but is especially important now as um you know i might have one less social to use it's very possible the u.s government will ban TikTok in the coming days or weeks. How they do it and through what legal methods they use to get it done is another conversation for another time. But I think in our modern globalized setting, this is something we're gonna to have to reckon with more and more. And I'm not saying I have the answers or Sai Wei has the answers or anyone has all the answers, but just to bring up the question and to really think through the actions of the coming years is something important to consider but uh, that's all we have for today <laughs> on that note i want to thank everyone for listening this has been minority report with me your host Salomon flamenco you can follow us at instagram uh, in the podcast notes down below and if you'd like to continue the conversation you can email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.